Lord, as we were saying earlier today, your word in Jeremiah says that the word of God is like a hammer that smashes and breaks rocks, hard things, and that your word also is like fire that exposes and purifies. So we ask, Lord, that you would unleash your word. May your word have a powerful effect, making us aware of our need for Christ and making us aware of the greatness of Christ and the wonders of his love for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Jesus Christ is and was the greatest teacher who ever walked on the face of the earth. He was able to take complicated concepts and boil them down, reduce them down to this clear and concise and easy-to-understand concepts. For example, if you're going to try to summarize the first five books of the Old Testament, called the Pentateuch, and you were to take 381 pages of information, and you were going to try to boil them down into a succinct summary How would you do it? Well, we look in Matthew chapter 22, and Jesus did this profound statement summarizing all of that information into two sentences. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is the greatest summary of God-given duty that anyone has ever made. The duty to love God and to love our neighbor. And so what we conclude then is that love, this is beyond controversy, love is at the core of Christianity. A loveless Christian is an oxymoron. In other words, Christian, community, Christian maturity is absolutely impossible. To think of someone moving along in their Christian life And to think that they're somehow not going to have love, uh, a love for God, they're not going to have any kind of love for other people around them, it's just not what true Christian maturity is all about. It is something that is essential. It's at the core of what a Christian is to be and do. Now, the challenge for us this morning, as we continue on, we started a couple weeks ago, we looked at the, the highest priority to love God, And we've looked at that in the previous sermon, and today we're challenging to think about what does it mean to love our neighbor? You think about the goals, the thing you're going to be pursuing this year in 2018. What's on their high high list of priorities? Well, I hope somewhere up there is loving God. I hope somewhere up there it's loving your neighbor as yourself. If that is true, then I want us to think this morning about that. But the danger for us in looking at this topic, love your neighbor as yourself, seems pretty straightforward. The danger is that we fall into platitudes or just generalities. It becomes something that doesn't impact us. It's something we talk about and know in our minds, but it makes no difference in how we live everyday life. So in our approach this morning, I'd like to just uh, spend a very short amount of time on two questions I'd like to answer, and then spend a lot of time on the last question uh, at the end of uh, the vast majority of my sermon. First question is this, what does Jesus mean by the word love? What does that mean, love? 
Second question, is our ability to love God and our ability to love our neighbor contingent upon or dependent upon our ability to love ourselves? And therefore, a need to think more and more about myself and loving myself. Is that really what he means by that? And then thirdly, what are some practical down-to-earth implications of what it means to love our neighbor? So here we go. Let's look at the first one here. What does Jesus mean by the word love? Our culture has hijacked that term love. And it is made to mean anything now. It has all kinds of associations We use the word love to describe our strong, hankering, and urgent desire to have a piece of chocolate cake. Oh, I love chocolate cake, right? And there's other people who talk about referring to their feelings of infatuation. This is how old I am. There's a song years ago that said, you've lost that loving feeling. Do you remember that? I won't start singing it, but it's already in my head. It's, it's about something that just overwhelms me like a big wave, knocks me down, and then it just passes on by. It's just sentimental, emotional waves. Or people have romantic sentiments, but that changes like the direction of the wind. You know, one day I'm falling in love, I fall out of love. It just, it means, who knows what that means. But the biblical term here that was used when Jesus described this and in the a Greek language there, he used the word agape. Agape, whichever way you want to pronounce it, agape. And the early Christians would take this term, which is a, a new coin term, it's a word that they're trying now to introduce into the language to use it this way. It really means self-giving commitment. Self-giving commitment. For example, Ephesians 5, we read that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you hear that self-giving commitment? Biblical agape love is more than sentimental feelings, which overtakes us and then it's lost. But I think a helpful definition of love is found there in your notes, uh, given by Sue Harville, which he says, an inward attitude or affection expressed in benevolent behavior or action which seeks the ultimate welfare of other people. That's a very helpful description of biblical agape love. And then John Piper adds this very helpful uh, brief quote. He says, love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. What a complete opposite of selfishness. The place to begin in considering this high priority of love, loving each other, loving other people, our neighbor, is to admit honestly and to admit humbly that all of us fail to do this in a great, rather egregious way. This is not something that naturally happens in our heart and life. There's more to love than just merely not doing harm to other people. Because there's some of us that say, well, listen, I don't cut people off when I drive, and I open the door for people when I... They, they like to think of certain things they do, but that's not just what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. There's things that we can maybe try to avoid doing, but there's a lot that is implied that we ought to be doing for our neighbor that many times we find ourselves unwilling to do so. 
In a sense, you could say that all of us have received, if we were taking a class in Relationships 101, and God were doing the grading, he would have to give all of us an F. It's not something that we do in a way that meets up to the standard of what biblical agape love expects. And that's why Jesus' love is so wonderful, because he does not score an F in agape love. Out of compassion and mercy welling up in his heart, Jesus chose to give himself at the cost, at great cost to himself in order to seek our ultimate good. It is Jesus who got down on his knees and did what? Wash the feet of his disciples. He assumed the punishment that we deserved when he died on the cross. He adopted us as his own, even though we deserved to be treated exactly the opposite of that. Jesus acted in such a way that when he suffered harm, he would suffer harm that we might escape harm, that we might be given all that is eternally good. And so when we think of this idea of loving our neighbors ourselves, we have to first of all say, well, first John got it right, didn't it? Chapter four, we love him because he's already been loving on us. He's already shown us love and more love, agape love. So then the question we ask ourselves is, why do we refuse so often to demonstrate true love to other people? Is it because it boils down to the fact that, well, I'm not in the mood. I just don't feel like it. I'm too busy. Or is it because maybe some of us, we like to keep score. Hey, this guy over here, man, he's got two, two and a half strikes. He's got three strikes on him. I'm not doing anything for him. Or this lady over here, oh man, I can't believe that. So we keep this long list of score. And until they get the score right, then we're going to determine how we'll show love to that person. May I remind you of Romans 5.8? While we were still enemies, not once things were made right, we finally got ourselves cleaned up and we sort of come and made apologies, we've already offered gifts to, to make things right. No, while we we're still enemies, God demonstrated his love for us in that Christ died for us. First thing we need to do when we consider the command to love our neighbor as ourselves is to admit that we're weak, that at heart we struggle with our selfishness. We admit that we fail. We fail to do so in the past. We, have, we are failing to do so now. We're going to fail to do so tomorrow. And so if we can't start on that point, then it seems like we're not going to be rather honest about what we're dealing with here. And so we are people who are in need of help. And it seems to me the only way we're ever going to attain this priority of loving our neighbors ourselves and loving God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind it really begins by tasting the sweetness of God's love. Tasting it ourselves. Drinking it in. Letting it quench our thirst and longings. Delighting in the fact that God loves us through His Son, Jesus Christ. It seems to me that's the first point in understanding and beginning to operate on this level of true love. Second question, very quickly, and I'm not going to spend much time on this, is our ability to love God and to love our neighbor, is it really 
dependent upon or is it conditioned by the amount of love I have for myself? Now, there are some modern psychologists, Maslow and others, who came up with this triangle of needs they talked about. Have you ever seen that diagram? And so they have at the top of it, they have the need to be self-actualized or whatever, and, and uh, all these other needs that need to be met. And if you don't have these other lower needs met, then you can't do the ultimate highest need and all this kind of pyramid of needs chart. And they would insist that there's no one is able to love other people unless our higher needs have been met. And I've given you, I think, a quote in your notes there from a quote-unquote quote-unquote Christian counselor who said this, that self-love is a prerequisite for our conduct toward our neighbor. Without self-love, there can be no love for others. You cannot love neighbor, you cannot love God unless you first love yourself. So the beginning step for this particular quote-unquote Christian counselor was to mainly focus on you got to spend time loving yourself. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but let me just be very clear here. Nowhere in the text, in Jesus' statement, in summarizing all of those first five books of the Pentateuch, nowhere does Jesus say, listen, folks, you are commanded to love yourself, and you better get to it, and you better work on it, and you better make sure you spend and devote lots of your energy and time to that. He never says that. It never says in Scripture, love yourself. It assumes that we all do because guess what? We do. It's natural as breathing. Everybody loves themselves. Self-love is assumed in Matthew 22. And the command to love our neighbor as ourselves means that we're to love our neighbor wholeheartedly as we already love ourselves so who do you take care of every day do you ever stop taking care of things that you want to see done no we do it naturally we say well this is what i want all oh, this is what i want to eat this is what i want to watch this is where i want to go it's what it's all about things that we are doing for ourselves all the time and so the summary of Christian duty is not to focus on loving ourselves so that we can love other people. The opposite is true. Jesus calls us to disown ourselves. He's saying, stop putting all of your weight and time and effort in focusing on yourself. Get past that because you already do that and move beyond that into enjoying the love of Christ and moving out to enjoy sharing that love with other people to be a channel of the love of God to those around us. That was a very quick point. So we're now on to point number three. Some of you are going, oh, wow, this is going to be a short service. No, I got five subpoints under number three. So just brace yourself. And this is all still talking about things in our mind. These are just things that affect the way we think. But I want us to bring it down to the level of where we live and think about what are some practical implications about loving our neighbor. Now, before I do that, I want to encourage you to think again. It's possible to sit there and listen to all five of these and say, well, okay, that was helpful. But I want you, as we go through them, at the end of this five different areas, and there could be many more you could add, I would like you to think and prayerfully say, i got to circle one of these. This is the area that I believe God is really starting to deal with me. This is an area I need to pray about and focus on and begin to think through how I can incorporate this into my life. 
So, here we go. Number one, uh, or A, what does Soros and practical application? First of all, love gives. Love gives, whatever the cost. Agape love always includes the element of giving. It's not primarily focused on what? What the worldly view of love is, is getting what I want. See, people who move into marriage and they think, listen, this is what I'm hoping and this marriage is going to do for me. This is what I want. If you get two people that live that way, guess what? you got problems. And that's what oftentimes is the dynamic. I call that, hey, gimme love, instead of agape love. Hey, gimme love. It works entirely opposite of what agape love is talking about. Hey, gimme love says, if I don't get what I want, I'm walking away from you because the agenda is I need you to give me what I want instead of me giving you what you need. So 1 John 3.16 says, we know love by this. Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our, li our lives for our brethren. Again, lay down our lives means what? Give up aspects of our agenda, our desires, our preferences. Taking a genuine interest in another person, in that person's welfare. Love goes beyond that, though. Love lays down one's life by getting involved in meeting the practical needs of others around us. 1 John 3.17, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? If you just ignore an obvious situation where there's some need and you have the ability to do something about it and you do nothing, I'm not sure you're really, you're nearly connecting all the dots on what it means to love. So laying down our lives is the opposite of self-fulfillment and convenient living. Laying down our lives means that we are gonna, we're willing to give up our precious time to help someone with their problem. The other day I was, I had a flat tire making a visit to Beulah Halberstadt one day and uh, came out there and I'm trying to change the tire and this guy who's a neighbor of uh, the Rosello family there crossed the street, uh, actually a, a relative of someone who used to go here years ago, Anyway, he comes over and he offered to get involved. He's the one that actually got that lug nut finally to loosen up. I thought the thing was rusted on there. I couldn't, anyway, so he's the one that helped me. And I thought, what a great thing. And I didn't forget that. I went back and thanked him uh, subsequently because it just impressed me so much that he was willing to get involved in my problem. Long story, he actually fixed the hole in my tire and took the screw out of it. Uh, he has like a shop in his backyard. I don't know, he's like a mechanic guy. He was amazing. What a provision. But here's the point. Laying down our lives means devoting our full, undivided attention sometimes to people who are sharing and talking and expressing perhaps some deep hurt, some concern, and then getting involved in praying for them about that concern. Maybe it means laying down our phones long enough to listen and focus on what people in the room are saying and what's going on in their lives. I think of a mother of an infant 
she's acting on the kind of agape love at 1.30 in the morning when there's a baby crying, and she's thinking, you know, I really don't feel like moving. But she will respond and give of herself to feed that child. Not once. How many ever times the child needs to be fed in the middle of the night? That's agape love. Laying down our lives, sacrificing our resources, helping to provide for the needs of others. The quote there by Amy Carmichael is so true. How? You can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Did I get an amen on that? That was a terrible amen. Can we get an amen on that? Thank you, church. Glad to know you're awake. (laughs) Secondly, how about look at the category of love reaches out. Love, in other words, initiates. Love does not sit back and wait for another person to then extend an act of kindness to us, and then we say, oh, okay, now I'm going to get involved. No, it's interesting. Love will take the initiative. And if you look in the New Testament, you read through this page of Scripture, and this is a good area of of challenge for us, is to look how many times does 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 the New Testament include the challenge to say, listen, love one another, and then gives you examples of how to love one another with these one another commands. There's like almost 30 of them. Practical ways that we can involve ourselves with other people to show them the love of Christ. Things like pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, uh, encourage one another, all those kinds of things. Now, let's get an example. If you wait for another person to make the first move before you'll respond to them in love, then what's going to happen? Well, love then at that point becomes passive, but the love here in idea of agape love is it initiates, it is active. So, Scripture says, greet one another. When you come into a new situation, when you come into a room, you come into church, do you wait for other people to speak to you first? Do you always wait to see if people will notice you before you notice them and take the initiative? But what happens if everybody does that? What happens if everybody waited till someone else first made the move to break the ice? As you make your way to the seat, guess what? Nobody would say anything. And so the idea is that love doesn't wait. Love reaches out. Now I'm going to push it a little bit here, and I'm going to add another element here that probably makes many of us uncomfortable. Love reaches out even when we don't feel like it. Biblical agape love involves this self-giving attitude that involves unselfish outward actions, You say, well, what do you have in mind? Well, listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. Jesus calls his followers to love their enemies. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who, not do good to you, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, biblical love, I'm going to suggest to you, is not necessarily anchored to our emotional well-being. That is, I don't think that sometimes our emotions are going to be bubbly feelings of, oh, joy and happiness and, oh, everything's so pleasant. 
if I've got somebody cursing me out, if I've got someone who has treated me in ways that show that they despise me, I'm not going to wait till I feel like and have these chipper little feelings inside of me to start praying for that person because it's not going to happen for most of us. But biblical love is a love that's rooted in our will. It's rooted in the part of us that says, in light of what God has done for me in Christ, oh, what amazing, wondrous love. He didn't wait for me to initiate love to him. He initiated love to me when I was his enemy. God extends his hands of grace to us while we were his enemies. So the point is what? Don't wait, initiate. And then I just give a word to some of the men here today. Men, in your marriage, would you be initiators? Would you offer to do things, initiate the idea of saying, hey, let's pray together uh, with your wife or with your children? Would you initiate uh, times of which you say, uh, let's have a family time and conference time. Or let's, let's do this together. Initiate as men. Doesn't mean you always have to do, doesn't have to be your ideas all the time. But just say, I think we ought to talk about this and bring up subjects so that everybody can throw their two bits in. To be an initiator is a great way to love your wife and your family. All right, point number, or C, letter C. Love overlooks shortcomings and weaknesses of others. Love overlooks shortcomings and weaknesses of others. What is it about me that I just focus on people's failings? Or that I can focus on someone who misspells a word and think, hmm, caught that one, look at that, misspelled that word. Or uh, the, the tendency is to find blunders or failings in other people. How is it that we can zero in on those things and make such a big focus on that? I'm sure all of us can come up with all sorts of annoying habits and mannerisms that people have that drive us up a wall, right? We all have our list. Uh, here are some of them I've thought about. Uh, people who don't use their turn signal when they're driving. Drives me bananas. Um, people who clear their throat continuously. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, people who um, always say, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know. Um, or like, like this, like that, and um, people who are late and don't seem to be bothered by that all the time, they're late to everything. Uh, people who talk with their mouth full, uh, whatever. Uh, people who never clean up after themselves, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on, right? May I just say, love does not give up on imperfect people. We're not waiting around to express love to people who have their act together, right? In Ephesians chapter 4, if you could find that in your Bible, it might be helpful to read along on this one. This is such a practical thing. Ephesians 4, first two verses of that chapter, as Paul now moves from the realm of describing the glories and wonders and blessings of the gospel, now he says, okay, let's think through the implications of that, how we're going to live our life. And he says, I entreat you, Ephesians 4.1, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. Forbearance. Biblical love calls us to be patient with other people who have faults, other people who are fallible people. 
rather than being quick to criticize, rather than being quick to condemn, love calls us to overlook some of the faults that people have. People are not going to be perfect. Love puts up with other people who occasionally drop the ball. doesn't mean that we'll never confront someone regarding their sin. It means that love will suffer long. It means that there are some minor offenses that we should just overlook. Hey, it's not a big deal. Just cover them over. Proverbs 19.11 A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Wow, what a good word for any married couple, wouldn't you say? Thank God my wife has shown me that for years. If an offense is not part of a destructive pattern, if the person's behavior is not causing harms to other people, it falls into the category of a minor offense. So, does your love result in you being slow to angry, being slow to become angry over people in their annoying ways? I wonder if it would help you to think about how many shortcomings in your life has God overlooked in the gospel? Are you loving other people by forbearing their faults? That's a practical way we can do it. Letter D. Hope you've circled one by now. We've got two more if you haven't circled one. Love puts the interests of others before our own. Putting the interests of others before our own. I mean, you can't help but think of Philippians chapter 2 when you get to this topic, in which Jesus was such a great illustration of this biblical agape love, right? Jesus lays aside his, the, his divine prerogatives, the privileges that were his to enjoy, the glories of heaven. He assumes a role and takes on the position of a slave, has no rights. He is not a person who is uh, deserving of respect from other people because of his low role. And he does this not because he's trying to advance himself, not because he's trying to become famous, or not because he's trying to draw attention to himself. He does this because he regarded other people like you and me as more important than himself. He did not merely look out for his own personal interest. He was deeply concerned for the interests of sinners like you and me. So here's Jesus, humbling himself, saying, Lord, I'm willing to do, Father, I'll do whatever you want me to do, even to the point of saying, I'll go and be mistreated and be abused and suffer the misery of dying on the cross in shame. The Bible says again and again, 1 John 4, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to God to satisfy the demands of justice that were against us. He got involved in our concerns. He underwent the horrors of Calvary, not because he was forced to, but because he was concerned about the plight of sinners like you and me. When we're concerned about the needs and problems of other people, obviously that means it's going to be, they're going to bear a cost. When you get involved in the lives of other people, sometimes it does bring about emotional distress in us. Sometimes it brings about anguish in our hearts. Sometimes it brings about tears on our, in our eyes. As you hear and deal with other people, your heart goes out to them. You're going to bear some emotional pain. But whenever we love deeply from the heart, that's what it means, is to bear that kind of affection for other people that we are sharing their burdens. And according to Galatians 6, that really fulfills the law of Christ. 
to get involved, become so concerned about others that you're actually um, giving of yourself in the interest of them, putting them above even your own. One final area I would suggest to you that's so practical and yet not easy, and that is to express love by sacrificing whatever it takes to forgive. If, again, in Ephesians 4, at the end of that chapter, Paul says, verse 31 and 32, Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, by the way, wrath and anger are two different words. One is explosive anger, people that fly off the handle. Um, and the other kind of anger is the slow burn anger, a person that carries around resentment and bitterness for years and years. It's either one of those. He says, let all of that, along with clamor and slander, be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. God in love provided Christ to die in our place as a substitute. Why? So that our transgressions could truly then be forgiven. So that he might let us off the hook. So that we can be people who what? Who no longer have to be owing him and paying the debt of all that we've done to offend him. So love extends the promise then to those who have offended us, this promise of forgiveness. It says, from this point on, I will not hold this sin against you. That what, that's what it means to forgive someone. You're making them a promise. I promise to release you from the debt that you owe me. I will not use this offense against you in the future, and I will not let this sin issue stand between us or hinder our relationship. And once again, I'll just close with a quick story again of that gentleman who has since died. His name is Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was a very good uh, athlete in his day. He told his story in the book Unbroken. There was a movie about him, but it was a very limited portion of his life story. They didn't go into the fuller extent of it. But he was a soldier, World War II, and his plane is shot down, and they are landing in the Pacific. They're in this little raft. And, you know, they, st they spent 20, uh, sorry, they spent uh, six weeks on a raft. And then you think, well, that's awful enough to spend that many days on a raft thinking you're going to die. But then to be rescued only by your enemies and the Japanese soldiers at that time took them and put them in a concentration camp for 26 months. Imagine that, over two years of absolute horrendous torture and mistreatment particularly this Zamperini guy. He was, he was uh, singled out. And in all that time, of course, Zamperini became enraged. He was just a, a man who was just so angry. He finally got released from uh, that concentration camp, came back to the States, got married, started a family, went on with life. And guess what? That rage was just eating him up inside. He was drinking uncontrollably. He was out of control with his wife, his kids. He was just a, ma a mad angry person. And during the early years of the Billy Graham evangelistic crusades, he went to one of those in Los Angeles, and the gospel of Jesus Christ really began to change him dramatically. And at that point, he became a Christian, 
And years went by, his whole outlook, his whole attitude, his whole everything about him changed, and he was no longer this angry, bitter man. As a matter of fact, he became a very loving man, and four years after his conversion, he had a desire to go back to the prison where all of those guards and people in charge of his mistreatment and the torture that he went, underwent in that concentration camp in Japan, he wanted to go back to them, he wanted to share the gospel with them. He wanted to show them that he wasn't angry at them anymore. His heart had been changed by the love of Christ. And sure enough, he went there. And he told his story, and through a translator they heard, and he explained how the Lord had changed his heart and gave an offer to come to Christ. And do you know that all but one person that he spoke to in that prison cell prayed to receive Christ because of a changed heart that was no longer bitter but full of love for his former enemies? Now that's the power of the gospel. And I saw a powerful demonstration of that, a video you might want to Google and look at it yourself this past week. Some of you know there's Dr. Larry Nasser, this horrendous doctor who has abused sexually, molesting all of these athletes and young gymnasts for years and years and years. This woman named Rachel Den Hollander, Rachel Den Hollander had an incredibly powerful presentation before the judge who was considering the punishment for this man. Obviously, she is a person who has worked through tremendous pain, tremendous anguish, tremendous uh, uh, shame. And here she is standing there as a trained lawyer, but obviously a believer because she says, you are a person who's done horrendous things and you need to face the reality of what you've done. But then she says this, I want you to never lose sight that the same God who has saved me is the same God that can save you and he can forgive you. And she preached the gospel to this guy. It's powerful. You should watch the video. It's tremendous. What's the point? Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ. May the Lord teach us what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray. I want you to think in your heart, if you just would take a second, and <clears throat> of those five areas there that we've talked about practical application which one is the one the lord has placed upon your heart is there someone you need to forgive is there some situation you need to start initiating is the lord impressing upon you to give not be so stingy with your time your resources i'm not sure what the area might be maybe there's another area the lord is already beginning to by his spirit impress upon you what are you going to do about it? I want to urge you, meditate on the gospel. Meditate on what God has done for you in Christ. Think through the implications of the wonders, the depth, the breadth, the vastness of God's love in the gospel shown to you, his enemy. And then begin to say, okay, Lord, I want to do something about it. And then pray about it and then take action and see what he'll do. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us not to just be people who talk about loving other people, not to just have all these thoughts in our minds about what love is like, but Lord, help us to be people who actually do it, who lay down our lives, who begin to stop focusing so much on ourselves and get past ourselves and realize there's a hurting world out there, opportunities to show your love that are just 
incredibly change agents to see the gospel begin to break through other places. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to be filled with wonder and amazement at your love and that that love will spill over and flow out through our lives into the lives of others. Even for this week, we pray for your glory. Amen. Amen.